My guest this morning is Senator Eugene McCarthy, I should say, former senator from Minnesota. And naturally, many of us think of Senator McCarthy in a certain moment in our history. It seemed to be a moment of great hope, too. And we thought of 68. And perhaps hear voice of 60, voice of 68, too, in a sort of evocation of memory by the senator, a traumatic moment for him and for our society. But just to point out, Senator Eugene McCarthy is passing uh, through Chicago now because he's will be an independent candidate for president on at the moment, it's the Committee for a Constitutional Presidency, and more of that in a moment after this message. It was Lincoln Park, 1968, August, a Democratic convention in Chicago. Uh, on the night before, uh, some kids had their heads battered around Grant Park, and some of the young were supporters of the candidacy of Eugene McCarthy. And he was there. It was quite a moment for him and for all of us. The following day, James Cameron, the British journalist, and I decided to go to Lincoln Park. And uh, uh, they were singing songs and reminded him of the Aldermaston March and the familiar songs. And uh, sort of a gentle spirit pervaded. It was under the auspices of the Chicago uh, clergyman and laity for the end of the war in Vietnam. And so we just hear this and then perhaps Senator McCarthy's reflections on hearing these voices in that moment. Come by here, come by here, my Lord, come by here, come by here, my Lord, come by here, oh Lord, come by. familiar songs, the old refrain. But what could be less militant than yeah. that? So there we were seated, and of course, we're not discussing something that was, of course, in the thoughts of all. Would they come again? This was the point, wasn't it? Uh, there was, the park was to be closed at 11, and the young ministers and the young people, of course, were obviously indignant as to what happened the night before. And they said they would sit there, since it is a public park, one of our, yeah, Lincoln Park, one of our most beautiful. And it was a beautiful event. And, but the question is, would they, and then you, James, and I, we, we were talking, and I was saying, well, of course not. Well, of course not, not in view of the, of the press received throughout the world. Well, obviously, they would not, because they are maybe not overly Christ-like, our fuzz, but nonetheless, uh, fairly intelligent, and our local Buddha. And so we thought, of course, they wouldn't come again. At least I felt this. What were your thoughts? I thought that they would not risk a repetition of all the terribly bad publicity of the previous day. But then suddenly it became obvious that they were going to. We, we suddenly became conscious of the fact that there were these strange figures in, in mailed, helms and so on, gathering in the dusk, 
all around beneath the trees in a most ominous and strange and uh, indeed creepy atmosphere. I think now we have to describe the scene. Now we come to a matter of imagery. Now we come to a matter of old tapestries on the wall. And now we come to a matter of old portraits and old, uh, well-thumbed, pictorialized history books. Todd, you, you, you have your imagery and I have mine, James, and everyone had his own. Uh, then someone announced that, yes, they were gathering, they, the police, and what's on. And so we looked about, and then was the sight. It was about 300 or so yards away across a field, across a heath. Now, it may well have been a medieval uh, lining up of forces, although there was no force on this side. There were simply people singing close to a cross. So my first impression was early Christians as against Roman legions. Exactly. That's the first impression. Yes. But then the second impression of mine, James, was uh, a spring festival or a summer festival, and suddenly out of a primordial myth and dream, Neanderthals with clubs, as though in a dream, you see. A Nordic sort of thing. Something. Now, what was your, what was your uh, impression? I was first struck by how beautifully it was being staged. I mean, visually quite beautiful. If you were trying to set up a scene for the confrontation of peace against war or something like that, it couldn't have been better done. The darkness, the the lights, the illuminations from the cars, and these strange, completely anonymous people, because the great strength of police in a case like that is that they have no personality, no individuality at all. They are all dressed identically, whereas the people they were up against were every single person was dressed in the most heterogeneous and outrageously <laughs> individual fashion. And this is obviously the forces of establishment against the forces of personality. And uh, then they remained completely motionless, if you remember, studs, for quite a long time. Oh, please talk about that. This, well, they of course, was built up this sense of tension. A sense of terror. But, uh, Senator, your thoughts, because he spoke of the impersonality, <coughs> the strange, almost ridiculous confrontation. Of course, I didn't see the one in, in Lincoln Park, but as, you, as he was describing it, and, and as you were, uh, I, I was in the Hilton looking out at Grant Park on one occasion, and it, it never got to quite that point of confrontation there, but I uh, I was interested when he made reference to the Nordic character of it, uh, that um, I said to people with me, I said, you know, it was a very happy scene. The young people were there, and they were singing, and they were walking about. Uh, it was sort of like a, a, a Bruegel, but then the guard moved in. I, we could see them changing the guard, marching the police squadrons and marching the the, the National Guard into change, and then they, you know, they encircled Grant Park. And it was rather moving to me because I remembered at the time, and I, I, when I wrote my book about the campaign, um, there was a writer from here named J.F. Powers. And he, um, in the 30s and 40s, he wrote a number of short stories about Chicago, and, well, Chicagoans, but he had in one a description of Grant Park and uh, Michigan Boulevard and the sounds, and uh, Particularly, uh, he said he'd, he'd never forgotten the sound of the yeah. Chicago police whistle, which was unique. That they talked to each other, and it was a, it was a description of a, you know of a, of a very quiet and you know the end of the day sort of thing. And then then the um, then all, then then the trouble broke uh, broke out as it did. And um, uh, the anonymous character of the police, uh, you know the. Um, it's almost uh, the only thing that they did show were their eyes, or the, uh, 
the bonbon matus in Haiti wear those mirror glasses so you mm -hmm. can't even see their eyes. Yeah. But uh, when the Hilton headquarters were raided on Thursday morning, I had uh, I wasn't notified of it, but I woke up and it was still dark, and I looked out and there were a few little fires in Grant Park. There were people there, and I said, well, I called the Secret Service, and I said, well, I, I think I'll go over and talk to them. I mean, they're over there, and we'd lost last night, and they're lonely, and we'll, we'll go over. And so when I came out to the central room on the floor, there was a young man there with his head bandaged, blood coming through a bandage, and he said they, they're beating everybody up on the 15th floor. So I went down to the 15th floor, and uh, it was a shambles. The tables were tipped over, and there were half a dozen people there, mostly young women, crying. And one of them came up to me, and rather curious, I was in West Virginia last week, and, and uh, there was a young man there. He's not so young now, but he said, you know, I was on the 15th floor when the police raided it. He said, uh, I was playing bridge. And... Uh, I said, well, you know, when I came down, there was this uh, girl crying, and she said, the police have just raided us, and she said, I was playing bridge, and she said, I had a 21-point hand mm -hmm. when they struck. So I went down to the, to the lobby of the Hilton, and they had uh, about 35 or 40, uh, not all young people, but they had them there sitting on the floor sort of scene you, you, you remember from, mm -hmm. you know, from, from war pictures and mm -hmm. Nazis and so on. And around them, standing were the policemen, just as you described, with the plastic helmets, uh, about 15 or 20. And I said, who's in charge? And nobody was in charge. Yeah. Nobody was in charge. Isn't that almost, isn't that almost the key? Nobody was in charge. Earlier, James Cameron spoke of the impersonality. Now, it's seven years later, 1975, this is 68, and you are in the arena once more. Would you say that moment or that event, uh, 1968, had a lot to do with altering what seems to be the attitudes of the young today and then, since many of the young are, are followers of yours, had been? Well, I think it was a severe shock to them uh, in, in, uh, in terms of their attitude towards the country and their hopefulness. Uh, in fact, it, it, there are certain personal, I think, uh, experiences I've had. In, in a way, some of them were so let down emotionally after that they sort of identified the let down uh, with me and sort of said that, you know, you really let us down, uh, even though I never felt that I had, uh, but that they, uh, there, was a, there was a rather deep bitterness because they, in those years and, and since, they, and, uh, they've shown some really significant courage when you think of how many of them have faced uh, uh, tear gas and how many of them have faced, uh, you know, mace and, and, and the police and here in Grant Park, as you remember, they would walk up and look right down the rifle barrels, and uh, and in some of those scenes of girls putting flowers into the barrels, and they faced barbed wire. It was a, it was a. By the uh, way, th they helped us, uh, Cameron and me. We we're older, middle-aged guys, and they really protected us too. This was uh, interesting. One kid kicked the canister away from us, and. And he's going to help you all. <coughs> I said, yeah, oh, they guys, cut out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You wonder about that. I was in, in a plane the other day, and I was sitting next to someone, and, and he said, uh, "People our age." And I looked at him and said, "You know, be careful there." <laughs> well, this is the question today. You know, we think of you. Are, we'll ask you about the third force, third movement, perhaps third party in a moment. The young, uh, 
a great many of the young, as well as older people, too, were, were admirers of yours. Today, we hear a great deal of talk of the young and the, uh, the quietude, on the, a disquiet kind of apathy isn't the word, in contrast to what had been a, a life-giving sort of force then. It isn't apathy exactly. It's it's a it's a sort of you sense that it's that they're not happy. I mean, it's not that they're that they're indifferent, but it's it's more like a frustration which uh, manifests itself in in a kind of inaction, a kind of cynicism. Although I I do think the potential is there for them to um, to to respond. Those that are off out of campus now and who had the the experiences of the '68 and '70 and so on, and those who are on campus. Who feel that somehow they were left out of things? That that some great experience passed them by in the '60s and the early '70s, and that um, if they can be moved to to react in a somewhat different uh, situation, not so emotional as that, but nonetheless important to the country and to them, I think the potential is there for for a, a very significant response. Something very specific. Very affirmative happened in your case. It was in January of sixty, of uh, January of this year in Wisconsin. Twelve hundred students gave you this a thunderous standing ovation. This is in contrast to what appears to be the case, you know, the uh, despair. And here, the, uh, what what caused them to do that? I don't know, but it, it you know you expect uh, in the University of Wisconsin, sort of a, a liberal, advanced campus, to to have something of that response. Um, uh, just because of the tradition of the school, but it's that was not very different from what I find on campuses that people would call uh, square campuses, uh, campuses that were not active in mm -hmm. the 60s. I, I spoke at Loyola University in um, New Orleans about two weeks ago, and we had 1,500 students who responded mm -hmm. in that same way. I spoke at American University in Washington, D.C., which is really a uh, uh, sort of a non-resident school. I spoke at night. They had to come back for it, and, and we had uh, uh, 1,200 students, an overflow crowd, who responded in the same way. And it's pretty much the experience I've had around the country, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not asking them to rise up, sort of, and the potential of, of, of the sort of public exhibition and demonstration of 68 is not there, but simply to say that there's pretty serious problems which face the country, and uh, and um, we want you to, to be concerned about them and, and then sort of commitment to do something about it. So when you put the two together, uh, uh, indicating your concern and common concern, but also saying we're going to give you a chance to do something about it, they do respond. I know that uh, you have suggestions to some of the uh, difficulties and dilemmas facing the country today that we, uh, perhaps some of the young, too, may seem conservative or may seem status quo inclined because of the tightness of the job market, too. That is, they must make out in the society somehow. There is, there is this, too, in contrast to 68. Yes, I think, uh, Studs, that we, we really should give not just to young uh, people, but yeah. in five or six critical areas, they, they, they have really performed very well over the last eight or ten years, uh, raising what I suppose one could call moral issues, but issues that had a significant uh, social impact. Uh, the opposition to the war, uh, uh, which required great bravery on their part. Uh, the really the, the early protest against um, uh, excessive consumption, consumerism. I mean, they were the first people really to begin to protest against the big automobile. Uh, they 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 protested. Uh, they led the protest really 
against, uh, I suppose, the area of overconsumption in the way of food. I mean, the the grape strike, I thought, was a, in terms of, of, of the character of America, was highly significant because uh, regularly, you know, if you had a, uh, the unions would, uh, would uh, ask their members to uh, boycott a, a non-union producer of some kind. But here was a case where they went to the country and said, don't eat this kind of food because labor workers are being exploited in order to provide it for you. And there was a, there was a great public response to that. Uh, m- what they did about clothes, saying, look, we'll wear blue denims. Uh, and I think it was, it was, you know, you get all sorts of sort of social, psychological explanations for it, but I think there was a part of it was uh, an honest decision that uh, we really uh, shouldn't consume as much as we were consuming. I was on the campus in uh, one of the New York State Universities four or five months ago, and it was it was a time of, uh, well, there's always a time of concern for hunger in Bangladesh and other places, and the students... Uh, fasted for one day said, and, and all their lunch money was was put into a, a, a common... Uh, you know, uh, as you're talking, Stan, something occurs to me. See, your appeal is to that buried, the humanity is there, but sometimes submerged uh, because of other issues seemingly more sensational. And the appeals of candidates to a great extent have been appeals to fear and to a, a sense of lack of vision. Perhaps, perhaps we should be more specific about your candidacy now. There's a committee, committee for a constitutional <coughs> presidency is the name of the, of the organization that is sponsoring you. Perhaps you could dwell on that a moment. Well, I will talk about it. I, I, I hope that you know, it works this way, uh, that, that the general thrust of politics and the appeal, both Democratic and Republican, has been to selfish interest. In, in the case of the, we always felt in the case of the Republicans, it was conservative interest saying, you got it and keep it, you know. In the case of the Democrats, it was a matter of saying you don't have it, and and uh, you know you have to do things to get it. And there was a lot of justification in that to 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 say to organize labor. Look, you're being abused, and therefore you have to organize and and and, and get what is it, what is a decent share of of, of the produce of uh, to be treated decently, or to say this to minorities. But you you reach a point where you where you say, well, now you you sort of have it now, and there are other problems around which have to be treated in a in a much uh, in a much broader moral context, and um, so I'm hopeful that uh, that we can move into that in this campaign, uh, uh, if there if there is a sort of, of spirit to it, I would think that would be it. I'm thinking of a third party, the uh, you know, I think it's Ferdinand Lundberg who said both parties, both major parties. The Republican Democrat are really two wings of one. He calls the property party, and they're both the wings and the same, generally the same kind of. Man. Well, I think they are in a way. It's not the same kind of property in each case, but a matter of saying I've got mine, and I'm going to keep it. And that, I- in some ways, the the manner in which um, I think of some of the of the rather old and, and and conservative unions that their attitude towards their job and their claim to that job is just as protective and defensive as, as that of the, of the Main Street merchant uh, as to do with his particular business. The, the, the basic concept of their ownership has become a, a, a sort of an absolute and a selfish one unrelated to the, to the needs and perhaps the rights of other people. And uh, we uh, hope to, to, to present at least the economic issues showing concern for particular inequities, of course, 
but uh, to present them in terms of, of the general need of the country and to ask for, you know, for unselfishness, for example, to, 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 to propose an income support program for the poor, to acknowledge that we've got 25 million poor in this country, which is a disgrace, and to say to the rest of society, something has to be done about it, more than is being done now, we have to face it honestly. But you're also talking about enlightened self-interest, enlightened self-interest, too. I mean, the, uh, I'm sure that your appeal is not simply to, an, uh, to altruism. It's also for the good of everyone himself, herself. Well, we'd hope so. I think you, you, know, you have to sort of make that argument in stages. But I've said that, you know, that we can still afford the rich in this country, but we can't afford the poor anymore. That the, that the poor are, 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 first of all, they're they're an affront really to what we believe in and to our potential to take care of the needs of the people. Uh, and the, too many politicians worry about the rich, uh, and I, I mean I worry about them a little bit when I, when I see Rockefeller in action. I think he may have more money than he should have. But the, the, the serious problem in the country... You see him as well. You see him in not yeah. only having the dough, but... But the some, serious some, problem sorry. Is, is, is poverty in this country, much more, more serious than the question of whether the, the rich uh, abuse their, their position of power and of wealth. The second point that we've been emphasizing here in, in, in Chicago this week, it's uh, something that I've been talking about since at least 72, is that we have to move to redistribute work in this country. That there, as technology has taken over, uh, the economy as, as it's conducted simply casts off people who are able to work, who are willing to work, who should have a job. and. Uh, we did something about this uh, 40 years ago, roughly 40 years ago, 30 years ago, when we passed the First Wages an Hour Act. We said that no American should, on a, on a wage should work more than 40 hours a week or eight hours a day, and if he did, he had to be paid overtime. This was an attempt to, to, really to, to, to limit the amount of time that any one person would, would have to work, and therefore to, to make more work available to other people. As you realize, you're in Chicago right now where the eight-hour day campaign began back in the latter of the, ni- latter part of the 19th century. Yeah, 1894, 96, that's, that's right. right. And, and how long ago it was? The eight-hour day, and, and, and you, know, you, you remember when they said eight-hour day, if a man doesn't work uh, 10 hours a day, and if he doesn't work on Saturday, what's he going to do? He's going to become yeah. corrupt. He's going to yeah. spend all his time in the tavern. He won't know what to do with himself. You know, I was talking about tech- since then, of course, technology itself. Technology and automation and the computer and how... You oh, and we're yeah. still operating on, on, on yeah. the same standards yeah. that we, we really yeah. were first advocated in 1894, yeah. 96, and which were really only adopted about yeah. 1938 or 1940. I'm thinking about you, Eugene McCarthy. And here comes a, a point, it's not a delicate point, it's a point that I'm sure you've faced, that labor, as we know it, the blue-collar man, I don't know who decides who the blue-collar guy is, that he doesn't like Eugene McCarthy. That is, there's this gap between the, again, we have this ridiculous ca- intellectual quote-unquote and the man with horny hands. And he likes, and here we come to something ironic, George Wallace. Now, how is the manner which you will be able to break through and reach this guy to show that you are much closer to his interest than the other guy is? Well, actually, I never accepted that uh, you know that that labor d- didn't like me or wouldn't respond to me. Uh, that sort of thing that was built up after 1968, but it it wasn't true before that. I I'd always had labor support in my congressional campaigns, and and um, yours farmer labor country, Democratic farmer labor party, and I'd always had it in my 
in in uh, in my Senate races, which involved the whole state and and my relationship with with labor. I don't suppose there's anyone in the Senate uh, uh, who who spoke was asked to speak more often to uh, labor groups around the country d- during those years, with the possible exception of maybe Hubert Humphrey and and, and Wayne Morse. So there was there was perfect understanding. I'm and you know, I like to tell them I had one grandfather who was a carpenter and another one who was a blacksmith, and and so I can really talk yeah. to these working people. You know, it was interesting. Uh, for a long time, you know, we my people fell for the, you know, for, for for the Agnew gag about the press being oriented toward anti-establishment, when the opposite was the case. How in this instance, it is the media, for want of a better word, the media that has made you the stranger to labor rather than the reality when you voted labor all the way and you've been close to it. Whereas George Wallace, whose record as a governor of Alabama, of course, is execrable when it comes to labor conditions. And how come? This is the part where the press really has failed. Well, I don't know whether underneath it uh, that uh, they've affected that change of attitude or, or of loyalty. Uh, in New Hampshire, I remember, we the, the um, the national labor movement was uh, supporting Johnson, and uh, we put out a, a voting record, uh, which showed that I had a hundred percent record in labor over the years. And as I remember, the Johnson record was like sixty-five percent. And the locals in I remember Berlin, uh, New Hampshire, they said we didn't know this. They said the national labor people have been telling us you're anti-labor. They said this really this disturbs us to find that this is the record. And so I think we have a little of that to do. But on one other count, actually there was a study made in Michigan State, I think it was, or Michigan, Michigan State University, uh, after the 68 campaign, which, which showed that uh, among many of the Wallace people, the blue-collar workers, that I was in fact the second choice. And that, um, well, that that conflict was really, really not there. And I, I do think that uh, you know we worked under difficult circumstances in um, in '68, and that, that labor generally was 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 sort of for the war. They were committed to it, and they just accepted it as a matter of loyalty, which is a credit to them. I mean, simple, simple loyalty. But that because of that, they uh, they never looked beyond it to to the other issues, and uh, or even to the record. And I think that in in a campaign such as we anticipate now in '76. Uh, that uh, that that will be that will be set aside. In some ways, the war issue was a handicap in '68 because whether you wanted to or not, you were made into a one-issue candidate, mm-hmm. uh, even though you talked about yeah. other things. Let's pursue this further, Senator Eugene McCarthy, a former senator from Minnesota, but his hat's in the ring once more as candidate for president. The nature of this candidacy, as we'll discuss further after this message. Resuming the conversation with Eugene McCarthy, former senator from Minnesota, but uh, there active in public life. And you spoke of the 68 the convention and the time of the war was made the one issue, made a one issue c- candidate rather than further dope as, f- as far as the press is concerned and, and TV as to your record when it comes to labor and domestic issues. And that became sort of a handicap. Yes, it did. Of course, if we'd gotten through the primary into the nomination, uh, uh, then we could have talked, well, actually no. we did talk about the other issues, but you couldn't get much attention to them. And in any case, as we approach 76, we, it's our intention to to offer an independent candidacy. And it really presented in, in, in terms of, of being important in three general area studs. One, 
to to force other candidates to talk about their conception of the office of the presidency, not just, you know, I'm going to be an active president. That doesn't say anything. One of them recently said, if I'm elected, I'm going to be an active president. That's like saying, you know, elect St. Vitus, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, you say, well, what are you going to do when you're active? Mm-hmm. We, we've had some active mm-hmm. presidents yeah, recently, had. and it, it's a question of what you do. But to, to have them state how they intend, what they conceive the office to be, how they intend to operate, how they will relate it to the Senate, to the House, to the courts, uh, how they will use the FBI, the CIA, these are important questions. Uh, and what information, how, how, what do they consider their obligation by way of telling the country what they're up to? The, the sort of the thing in the Pentagon Papers. I, I, you know, I was not surprised to find there were Pentagon Papers. Everybody knew there were mm-hmm. contingency plans in 64 mm-hmm. for a war that was expanded in 65. But the fault was, I think, that Johnson, running in 64, uh, made his whole case pretty much on that he was going to keep us out of war in Asia when at the very time they were considering plans. Now, I think he, I, he would have been elected anyway, but I think he should have said, we have a problem in southeastern Asia. We're thinking about it. We, we may have to do more there than we're doing now instead of mm-hmm. let Asians boys do what Asians mm-hmm. need done or whatever that was. Uh, secondly, to talk about the manner in which presidential nominees are, are selected and the manner in which the election takes place because I think there's a properly a great uneasiness in this country uh, over somehow that that presidents aren't representative. People don't feel that their judgment, even if it's the wrong judgment, never got through to a point where it was considered by the president. You know, Doris Lessing, a British novelist, speaks of uh, presidents of chiefs of state of various countries meeting, of various societies flying through the air with the greatest of ease and meeting someplace, whether it be uh, Nixon at the time meeting Brezhnev, or for that matter, Joe and Lai. And uh, there is no connection with the great masses of the people. That is, they meet as though they were in some vacuum. You know. That's what you're talking about, I believe. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and, and part of it is, is structural, and, and part of it's in the process that it's, it's, uh, people are, are right in saying that uh, we don't really have a representative government. And, and uh, this is, a very, I think, a very, f- uh, very serious issue in, in a democracy like ours. When, when people get to feeling that, that they're not represented, that the president is not theirs, uh, that you have to worry about it. Um, and especially, I suppose, 200 years after the Revolution, uh, in which one of the slogans was, as we know, taxation without representation is tyranny. We're inclined to think that the, the, the big concern was the taxation. Actually, the taxation was not very serious. It's not as bad as taxation yeah. with representation. Yeah. But the critical issue was that they were being taxed without being consulted. And that these were people who said, we want to govern ourselves. We, d- we, we don't want arbitrary decisions made for us by someone yeah. else. On that subject of taxation the, and the big chunk of the check out of a working man's uh, pay is one he never questions. Now, I suppose the Cold War plays a role here, doesn't it? The big chunk goes to the Pentagon, goes to the military. He never questions that, he, she, but questions what may go to health education, which is minute compared to the other. Yeah, or as of now, a, a great deal of questioning about uh, how much goes into Social Security. Mm-hmm. They're raising this question, are, are, is this particular working man contributing more to the, to the pension of someone else who's now retired than he should? Whereas the... Uh, the, the defense expenditure goes really quite beyond, uh, quite free without, uh, without criticism. I suppose in your campaign, we'll come to that in a moment, you probably hit that with the fact that at the moment, I mean, 
any, any, any one of these big powers can knock the other off easily. The, the madness of overkill and the expenditures for just no reason. Well, I, uh, I saw a report recently which says that we have enough nuclear power now to destroy all Russian centers of population and of uh, industry uh, 15 times. Not once or twice yeah. or five times, but 15 yeah. times. And they supposedly have almost yeah. enough now yeah. to destroy us so uh, then, then what five times. Now, what is the use of more money to go so after So you that say, what is the point of yeah. getting excited about a, 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 a nuclear agreement uh, which is, is going to set the limit of our production and that of the Russians even higher than where we are now? Uh, you know, I, and, and, and some of the, you know, Mr. Jackson was talking about parity. Well, what's parity once you've once you have enough to destroy all of them once, and they have enough to destroy mm -hmm. all of us once, uh, what kind of parity are yeah. we talking about? Do we, do we say we, we, we should each have enough to kill each other 20 <laughs> times? Is that parity? <coughs> or or is, it, is the whole thing, as you said, moved into a, an area of a kind of a mad arithmetic? Yeah. Do you think the climate now is ripe and the time ripe now for the guy? You know, the, I'm talking about the good, hard-working man who had the flag to Cal uh, uh, on the back of it, the window of his car. Uh, this hard-working guy who never questioned the war now begins to question many things since Watergate and since Vietnam, of course. I think so. I think that, that, you know, it takes a while to get something like this through to people, but I think there's a growing feeling now that, uh, that we are over-defended, that this becomes unreasonable. And also, and it's a little bit difficult to put this through, but also a sense that, that the, the expenditures for military purposes and what goes with it have done two things. That they have, that it's beginning to affect the economy adversely. The man who's paying these taxes says, look, and they say, well, we can't do this to, in terms of the domestic economy because we have the defense budget. We can't do Medicare or, or health insurance because we have a $100 billion defense budget. So they say, well, maybe we better look at that budget. When things are going well, they say, well, we can, uh, McNamara and those people say, we can have two wars like Vietnam. We can have guns and butter. But it turns out now that there isn't enough butter really there isn't a, the mm -hmm. domestic needs are not being met so you say well why not and the f the first place you look to is 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 wasteful military expenditures and people will look at it now because they and i think when they do they, they will conclude that uh, we are overspending you know, one of the big questions before i ask you about your phrase the imperial presidency you were the f you were one of the first to use that long before watergate the the question of guns and butter it doesn't make any sense, really, guns and butter. Uh, does some say that, remember, the Great Depression of the 30s ended what, n not with Roosevelt. There were still 10 million unemployed when the Nazis invaded Poland. So is our economy, if there's no Cold War or hot war and we're at peace, is our economy viable? That's a delicate question. Enough. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a hard question. It's a, it's a question that Marx asked, you know, and he said you can't make capitalism work uh, unless you have artificial stimulation, and he said principally war. Uh, I, uh, I, 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 I challenge that. I think that we, we really, it's, it's a test that we're being put to, though, is whether or not we can so direct the economy of the country without tremendous military expenditures uh, so as to better meet the needs of the people. And rather curiously, the experience of the Vietnam War argues even against the, the, you know, the, the, the Marxist theory and what was more or less accepted that, that the expenditures in that war didn't really stimulate the economy. They had an adverse effect on it. And, and as it, the war was sort of being slowed down, if there was a rumor of, of, of peace, 
which you might have expected uh, to have an adverse effect on the market. Okay. A rumor of peace would, would send up. the market up. If, right. you, if the war was expanded, it would have an adverse yeah. effect on the market because it, it had reached a point where, where wasteful expansion. And I recall an um, automobile strike in 1967, and everyone expected, well, automobile strike, slow down automobiles, the market will go down. But it didn't. It went up. And I suppose they could have kept the strike going for, for six months. It, yeah. it, it, it would have been a hardship on auto workers and so on, but in terms of the overall economy, yeah. so that it demonstrated a point rather clearly, which I've talked about some since, that the, the expenditures for war at that time and the expenditures, unnecessary wasteful expenditures in the automobile industry yeah. were having essentially the same effect. Yeah. You're just saying that, if I interpret you right, our imagination has not yet been called upon, really, uh, as an open society and a, a very uh, relatively affluent one. Our imagination has not been called upon. Is what you're the old, the old, envisionless techniques have been tried. It seemed to work, you know, yeah. so they weren't challenged. Now they're not working, and what was called upon, yeah. really, is, first of all, I think, just a reasonably intelligent judgment. It doesn't take any great insight. You don't have to be a visionary or a mystic, I mean, to... to, to it's, it's sort of... A, the case of the Vietnam War, uh, you know, there were some people who said we were against that war before it started. Well, uh, you know, that's fine. I mean, that that takes real foresight. But after that, once it, it it was Johnson began to escalate it, and you could see from you know from almost month to month that every projection they made about what was going to happen uh, was wrong, and. So they escalated, escalated. Each time they escalated, they, they gave us a, a, a larger reason. And each time they escalated, it didn't prove out that they you know, go from 100,000 mm -hmm. to 250,000 to 500,000. If we fight through the monsoon season, they'll know we're here. If they say, well, we'll fight through the dry season, they'll be too weak to fight in the monsoons. Um, you didn't have to be, uh, uh, you know, you didn't have to have a pacifist point of view, which I didn't. You didn't have to say, I have great historic insight. All you had to do was chart it, you know. And I think the same thing is true now as we, as we look at, uh, at, the, at the production of nuclear weapons. You don't, have to, you don't have to ask people to put trust in God or trust in the future or trust in the Russians. All you have to say is, you know, let's just be reasonable. This is not a, we're not asking for an act yeah. of faith. Mm -hmm. We're acting for a, for a, a rather obvious response to yeah. an obvious fact. Yeah. If there's detente here, there seems to be detente for the wrong reasons. Well, I mean, you, why <laughs> two not? guys I mean, dividing the turf. doesn't. If, you, yeah. if we were down to a point where we we're saying yeah. to the Russians, look, detente has gone so far that we only want enough nuclear weapons uh, to kill all of you, only half of you. Mm -hmm. We're going to let the other half go, and you agree to cut yours down so you can only kill yeah. half of us. Yeah. You know, you say that's really a, a great concession, yeah. but it's always talking about detente. The There's also something else. You're in Chicago now, you know, and we used to have two gang leaders here, the Capones and Bugs Moran gang. They would divide the turf very much, yeah. whereas the little guy between them. So we think of all those small powers, third world particularly, who were have no say at all in this matter. So it's not too removed from uh, two big shots dividing the turf in a way, is it? Sort of. Well, it's... That's really sort of what we set out to do, say we will be the only ones who have yeah. nuclear power and the rest of you will be dependent upon us for either protection or, yeah. or, or, or for no protection. Come back again to your 
approach to the problems facing us. Earlier you mentioned poverty. Two-thirds of the world is going to bed hungry, two-thirds of the world. Now here it seems to me would be a fantastic source of jobs, would it not, for millions of people instead of working in defense plants. Well, uh, if I could sort of summarize, I think the three great areas of waste in, in our country, uh, one is, is, is the overconsumption of food in the sense that, that we, we are great consumers of, of protein in, in, in the form of animal foods and that um, the amount of, of protein, cereal protein, that goes into production of a pound of beef is roughly 20 pounds of, of cereal protein. And I'm not saying we know we don't cut back and become vegetarians, but uh, first of all, there are two things. One, there's, there's evidence that we shouldn't eat that much meat, so it's not good for us. The second thing is that that there's a tremendous potential for us to use our agricultural production as an economic force in the world and as a force for good. And a study I read the other day said if we cut back uh, our meat consumption 20%, that we could have we could have taken care of the hunger problem in Bangladesh. Well, that's an oversimplification because you have transport and distribution. But in terms of, of a quantitative measure of it, and it seems to me that we just have to begin to move as, as a society to say that this is a great resource, and we really don't have a right under under existing conditions to simply consume uh, roughly 80 percent of our cereal production by putting it into into animals. Secondly, is, is this matter of the overconsumption of, of, of fuel and of materials in the automobile, uh, which uh, if, if what we observed in 67 is true, it means that the automobile, uh, if Karl Marx were writing, would, he, would, he, could, he would say you could have, he'd write another chapter saying you have either war or the automobile yeah. to waste resources yeah. and it actually destroys life. Uh, but to, to accept that uh, it isn't just a question of, of our saying we don't have a right to to consume these resources of fuel sort of in a vacuum, uh, but particularly now since it's recognized that uh, that uh, fuel is a, is an economic and a political force in the world. And the third is, as is, is, um, we were noting, uh, the overproduction of national defense, the wasteful production of national defense. And... and uh, as I said, it's not a question of asking people to, to, you know, to trust the future or to trust the Russians. Uh, all one has to say is just trust your own judgment and your own reason and the obvious conclusion of yeah. any examination would say, let's cut back. You know. And there's something about let's cut back. It's interesting. You know, one of the consumer groups says the most revolutionary phrase today could be, who needs it? Who needs yeah, it? Yeah, which, you know, our consumption now is as old-timers like you. We remember reading yeah. Thorsten Veblen yeah. and the Conspicuous Waste. Waste, and planned obsolescence yeah. that, that uh, we've gone beyond, the, beyond the, what the he imagination yeah. of, of what Veblen yeah. was. He was really talking about conspicuous waste on the part of a very small percentage, mm-hmm. uh, whereas now we have conspicuous waste, uh, 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 yeah. planned obsolescence, the practice of, um, of practically you know, the whole population. Yeah. But now as you're in the arena again of seven, 1975, Bad things have happened, some good things have happened, too. There are a good number of different grassroots organizations, consumer groups, groups in ecology, groups battling tax inequities, and there's a surprising number of not really un- uh, unknown to a great many Americans, yet known in, in different regions and quarters. They could be factors, could they not? Well, I think a lot of them would come in. In, in. in many cases, it's young people who were involved in 68 who provided the inspiration and the leadership for those, those movements. A fellow named Sam Brown, who was, 
uh, one of the leaders of our, our young people in 68, uh, led the fight in Colorado against having the Winter Olympics out yeah. there. And, uh, and they just said it was going to destroy the, yeah. you know, the, the, the hills and it was going to upset the whole economy sort of. the country. And in, in Colorado, voted against it. And they said, you know, 10 years yeah. ago, they would have, yeah. Chamber of Commerce yeah. would have rejoiced and they would have, they would have bulldozed, you know, yeah. half the mountain to get a, to get a, a ski slope set up. And the many groups right now fighting the reactor plants, too. And nuclear reactor and, and then Brown yeah. got elected state treasurer, you know, so that the fact that he, he t took this position uh, in the state of Colorado and they said, well, that would really kill a fellow. I mean, he might win on that issue, but he's done. Uh, they turned around and, uh, and, and elected him to a state office. Yeah, yeah the, the question of the, of the nuclear reactors is a little more complicated, I think, that is that you, you know, you, we really have to make some some relative decisions as to where we're going to get our energy and and, um, There's something called the sun that hasn't been. Uh, yeah, they're working on that. I think that's yeah. a little bit remote. It, uh, but uh, I think that what's happened in the case of the nuclear thing, anyway, has been good in that the controls and the and the challenges have mm -hmm. have really uh, set up a line of defense within which I think we probably can now uh, develop uh, n uh, domestic use of nuclear power mm -hmm. with some risk, but but with a margin of safety. Well, do you sense in various groups? involving various causes, whether it be ecological or political or involving taxes. I mean, do you sense a grassroots feeling that might redound to your favor? Well, if, if what we're presenting, if, if it comes through, that, that most of these decisions that you're talking about, rather limited local ones, are, are, are somewhat unselfish. I mean, the, the person says, well, I'm, I want to conserve this land because other people have a right to enjoy it, or maybe the next generation has a right to it. Or in the case of strip mining of coal, they say we, we don't have to use this coal, which if we do use it destroys uh, the landscape, it destroys productive land, it results in leaching of acids into streams and so on, that we can get fuel from underground or from other sources. And so we will, we will make the decision to go the harder way. And uh, I think that you, you move from those particular things, conservation, consumer protection, and so on, to say there are some rather broader judgments uh, that have to be made in somewhat that same spirit. Senator McCarthy, before the hour runs, and it runs very quickly, uh, more specifically about the group itself and the nature of it, it's called the Committee for a Constitutional Presidents. It doesn't actually envision a third party or something more vague. Well, it would course. be, we don't like to call it a party because we, we hope to avoid the structure and the processes of the other two parties as long as we can. And, and uh, it, it may be that eventually it'll, what we're doing, and I'm committed to be their candidate, we're, we're in the process now of uh, preparing to, to have presidential electors on the ballot in every state, even some where we don't think we have much chance, but we, we want the country to realize what's happened to the political process. So to be on the ballot with, with electors in every state, we hope to uh, move beyond that to have the, the beginning of, of a campaign organization in, in every congressional district in the country. That's 435. And we may even break that down. We'd like to break it down even to smaller units if we can. And to be ready in 76, um, uh, have made the legal preparation to get on the ballot, to, to get the necessary signatures to be on the ballot, and then to take to the country um, uh, in, in the campaign of, of the fall uh, a set of issues and propositions about the nature of government, the presidency particularly, 
the political process and how it ought to operate. And then uh, what we anticipate will be positions on issues that the country will respond to if, if it's given a chance. And that would have an impact, of course, you assume. Well, we hope it would have now. the impact yeah. of winning the presidency. Yeah. Uh, you know, you were talking yeah. about the spirit of the young people yeah. in 68 and the singing. We didn't get through but uh, in, in that campaign. But on occasion, we did talk about taking the fence down around the White House. Mm -hmm. Well, that was, mm -hmm. we might have done it. But, I mean, mm -hmm. symbolic, it yeah. was a question of saying, let's not have the president, you know, removed from the country by iron fences. And I said, instead of riots, we would, we would have some dancing in the streets. Mm -hmm. And we said some other things. I said, I thought if I were president, I would you know, give away the Rose Garden, have it removed, mm -hmm. and probably we would just plant cabbages there because... You never promised anybody a Rose Garden. No, yeah. that people, you know, are not so eager to declare war yeah. in a cabbage patch. I mean, uh -huh. it doesn't read very well in history. Yeah. So the president went out into the cabbages and said, I am now a great yeah. noble leader of the free world, and in that yeah. name, why, we shall, uh, we shall destroy yeah. half of it. By the way, as you're talking, uh, Senator McCarthy, you mentioned the young. I'm sure the great number of older people, too, who have this feeling now, and more since the Vietnam War ended, and since it was going on, too. And perhaps changes are taking place, too, in, in the field of labor, as we know. A little, little change there, too, that might alter things considerably. Well, there are some signs, and, and you know, some of the unions, especially under the pressure of, of recession now, have shown at least a greater concern for, the, for their own members, and, and, and it, to say, let's keep everybody working instead of cutting off 10% and saying, well, sorry, fellas, you were the last ones in, so you're the first ones out. And if we can spread it beyond the particular union and its membership to the whole of labor, uh, and beyond the whole of labor to all of the potential working people of this country, uh, I think that uh, you know we would have done a good work. And labor has, I, I, I don't mean to say it's been selfish, in many areas, organized labor, uh, has advocated things like uh, minimum wage, uh, which benefits more people who aren't organized than who are. Uh, even the uh, even the limitation on hours benefits people who are outside because uh, they don't negotiate for it. And um, things like Social Security and so on, which labor has advocated, and civil rights. But I think we've reached another point of testing in the country. And uh, I, I'm optimistic that if, you know, you never know it's like 68, you know. When we started the campaign against the war, people said, you know, this country will, yeah. you know, be likes its wars, it believes in its wars, and it always has, and, you know, we've never been in an unjust war, and that this is futile to ask the country to, to make a judgment against itself. But once they were given a chance, what was said to be 12% opposed to the war became 30% and 40%, and, you know, 50, 60% finally, yeah. but it might never have been known if we hadn't made the test, and um, I think that uh, the signs are encouraging enough that to, to indicate and suggest that something of that same kind of test and broader and more complex mm -hmm. issues uh, uh, is worthwhile. What seems to be very attractive about the candidacy of Eugene McCarthy is that earlier we spoke of the impersonality of our days. Here's something highly personal, and it's the appeal to the personal needs and aspirations of people. Thank you very much. During all this conversation, we mentioned Watergate not once, and it, uh, this is what you call a, a Watergate need not have happened idea. <laughs> Thank you very all much. Right. Well, we're post-Watergate now. <laughs> post-Watergate. Yeah. All right, Thank you very much.